One focus, one subject. Welcome to The Real Story, the podcast that brings together global experts to explain one issue shaping the news. BBC World Service podcasts are supported by advertising. Thanks for downloading this podcast of NewsHour Extra, and I'm with Elizabeth Davis in what some would say is the greatest city on earth. We're walking around central London, and we're nearby a church, nearby the BBC, nearby a hotel, nearby the Chinese embassy, nearby all the shops, nearby everything, restaurants. Nearby lots of traffic. Lots of traffic. Uh, London never fails to deliver, I would have thought. But it is an interesting issue because we're talking this week about cities, and that was selected by Elizabeth Davis producer so why did you go for cities well the future of cities and how to design them and how to make them better uh is something that's always interesting and will become increasingly important Uh, i've just got some un figures here in front of me uh in 1950 about a third of the world's population lived in cities and actually today over half do and by 2050 that's going to be even more and the cities people live in will get bigger and bigger Uh, So the question is, you know, you take London as as an example, the traffic is awful, like people hate commuting because the tube is always incredibly busy, there's horrible levels of pollution, no one can afford to buy a house, etc. I mean, these aren't problems just faced by London, they're faced by cities all over the world. So the question is, how can you design cities in the future to to deal with these problems? Well, I've I've got a question about this. Is it a separate academic discipline because there are people in universities as we're going to hear who study cities and yet it seems to me if you study geography or i don't know engineering or transport or whatever that, that you all the subjects are covered by others well i think the idea is that the study of cities brings these specialists in all these areas together um, and cities are very complex and complicated and involve a lot of different issues uh, as we will see in the programme. Jolly good. Well, that's a fair defence, and we'll see if it stacks up. So thanks very much for the topic, Elizabeth Davis, and we will now head back to the BBC, and here is the podcast on cities. BBC World Service. This is Owen Bennett-Jones with NewsHour Extra, and our topic this week is cities. There are more and more of them. They are getting bigger all the time. They're very complicated, increasingly complicated, There are new ones and there are private ones and old ones and reformed ones. So cities in all shapes and sizes today. And our panel, Susan Parnell from Cape Town, but conveniently currently in London, a professor at the African Centre for Cities at the University of Cape Town. We have Ricky Burdett, who's Professor of Urban Studies at the London School of Economics, uh, one of London's best-known universities. We've got Dr Janice Perlman, who's in Rio de Janeiro and is the founder and president of the Mega Cities Project it's a transnational non-profit dedicated to shortening the lag time between ideas and implementation in urban problem-solving. And also from New York, we have John Rossant, founder and chairman of the non-profit New Cities Foundation, and that fosters uh, urban innovation, tries to bring together all the very many people involved in thinking about how cities develop. So thank you all for coming. And we're just going to start with a slightly different take on this from the designer of Sim City. Now, I don't know if you've, I'm sure all you four will have come across it, but uh, others may not. It's a video game in which you build and develop a fictional city, and it's got lots of interesting things about it. So if you put up taxes, people riot, and if you, you know, create jobs, then there are fewer homeless people, and so on. And Stone Librand is one of the designers of this game. It's been going for many, many years now, and they have various versions of it. I think there's a new one just out. And I asked him to summarise the main problems that developers on SimCity come up against. 
we're mostly trying to entertain the players of the game. With that said, we still are trying to be as realistic as we can and to point out certain problems. Uh, so, for instance, in this recent version of SimCity, we added homelessness into the simulation, which had never been in there before, even though from an entertainment point of view, it's not the most entertaining thing to try to simulate in a city. Have you ever heard of a real-world city planner playing your game? Uh, yes, all the time. Um, in fact, when we were traveling around uh, the country touring for the game right before it came out, a lot of our stops were at places like MIT and NYU in their architectural departments. And I hear frequently people telling me that the only reason they're in urban planning is because when they were really young, they played SimCity, and that's what got them interested in the subject to begin with. Uh, we had this uh, funny moment where we decided to compete the students at MIT with the ones at NYU, and they each built their own city, but their cities were next to each other in the region. And so when we first went into it, we thought, well, this will be the best region ever because we have these students who are studying this, building these cities. And instead what they did was they started building their factories downwind of each other and blowing pollution into the other one and sending crime into the other one. And they're basically trying to sabotage each other's cities in a way that would make them win the game, which we thought was kind of not what we had expected. Um, but we did do an expansion for the game shortly after the base game came out where we added in future cities, which was we looked about 50 years into the future and basically our rule of thumb was that if it's something in the lab today, then we can put it in our game to show what it might be like 50 years from now in the cities. So we did a lot of research into advanced power supplies like fusion energy. Uh, we added in a layer for drones, for instance, because we felt that drones were this big thing coming up soon. So the future expansion pack for the game actually gives you a sense of what might be coming up and how cities can solve their problems. Do you have a favorite real world city? We studied a lot of cities for the game, and I was actually surprised by some of the cities, like Pittsburgh, for instance, in Pennsylvania, uh, that I had stereotyped as this coal mining city that was really polluted. Uh, but when I actually went to visit there, it was just this gorgeous city with these bridges. The air was clean. They have converted a lot of their factories over to commercial districts. Uh, so I was actually surprised by how beautiful and nice that city was when I went there. And I guess the last question to you is, if you look ahead let's say 50 years, what do you think is going to be the thing that would surprise most people about the nature of cities? I think it's going to be the energy usage or lack of it, depending on you know, whether you're an optimist or pessimist about the situation. You know, we're getting into the point, you can just look at Beijing, for example, of you know what the sky looks like there every day. When you look at that as a model for maybe the world is going in this direction, uh, it can actually be pretty disheartening. On the other hand, uh, when we were in Copenhagen last year and I looked around and there was just bicycle lanes everywhere and traffic lights for the bicycles and you would go to the mall and there would be a parking lot the size of a, a normal car parking lot but filled with bicycles. And looking at that city and just seeing how efficient it was and how all their bicyclists followed the laws uh, really inspired me that it seemed like all cities should be able to do the same thing. There we are, Stone Librand, with, I think, the music behind him from uh, SimCity. And so let's just start uh, talking to our professors here in London, and then we'll go abroad to Rio and New York. And let me provocatively put this point to you. Uh, cities are not a proper academic subject, and that, uh, it, 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 you know, is it, is it really an academic discipline? Let me start with you, Professor Burdett from LSE. 
Of course they are uh, a proper subject of study because they're complicated. They cut across every single sort of thing we can encounter in life, social issues, environmental and political ones. And that's why you need the sort of institutions that we <laughs> represent to understand them. Yeah, so, so you're really saying if you're at a university, the sociologists, the environmentalists, the scientists, just about, just about everybody could, yeah. could get involved in a discussion. Yeah, I mean, I think what's important is that there's an urban focus within each discipline. So you need the engineers to talk to the medics, to talk to, to everybody. And what cities represent is this very difficult terrain where you need specialist knowledge and you need generalists who are able to pull that whole lot together. Right, now that was uh, Professor Parnell from Cape Town. Let's go to Rio and uh, Dr Janice Perlman. I guess one of the points about this is that most of the new cities and, uh, and maybe the bigger cities are in the developing world, not in the developed world. Yeah, that's exactly right. And in the cities in the developing countries, the majority of growth in these cities is growth in the informal sector. The fastest growing population, in fact, on the world right now is in cities of the developing countries. And within that, it's in the informal sector. And so when you think that they're starting from scratch um, and you're building a sim city, you're already starting with an, a kind of an assumption that there's a blank slate and you get to put things where they are. Well, when right now in Rio in preparation for the Olympics, they're trying to put Olympic stadiums and major roads where people are living. In the middle of people. In the middle of people's communities. Right. So and, it's not, yeah. And when you say informal sector, just to make that clear, you're sort of talking about slum areas and favela areas and that kind of thing. That's right. What happens in these cities is that people who are attracted to come to the city to give their children and the next generation a better opportunity for um, access to jobs and education and health care and all kinds of opportunities and choices, these people are coming massively into the cities which have no housing that's affordable to them. So they can't rent and they can't buy and they end up building their own communities and houses on unoccupied land. And these communities are becoming in some places the majority, not the minority. And they're off the grid, so they're not often serviced by either the social services, but also many of them don't have uh, water, sanitation, and electricity, and especially true in Africa, which is just beginning its big urban bulge. Let, let's bring in John Rosant from New York and just put to you this this general point that, I mean, you obviously believe cities need to be studied and it need to be thought about. I, mean, I think many people think that cities naturally grow. So can you counter the idea that cities can be left to grow on their own accord, as it were? Well, cities are going to grow on their own accord everywhere. But I would, uh, I think there's one other aspect that we haven't yet addressed, and that is the whole um, phenomenon that we're seeing across the world of real sim cities, cities that are being built from scratch. You know, we at one time, uh, you could say that um, in the 18th or 19th century, we had those kinds of realities in, in let's say, North America with Washington, D.C., which was a planned new city. Or indeed in the 20th century, uh, new cities like Milton Keynes or in Britain or Reston, Virginia. But what we're seeing because of the incredible uh, population pressure in the global south, and this is where people are moving en masse to cities, that there is a need to create cities from scratch. And the key thing here is once you've, you've planned out a new city, 
Um, how do you make that city work? How do you attract populations? How do you make these new urban realities uh, dynamic places in which to live and work? Very, very complicated equation, um, ultimately. But it's one that's very important because we're going to see these over and over again across China, across India, across Malaysia, across Indonesia. Just as, just as to sort of clarify the scale of the issue, are any of you able to give me some numbers in terms of how many cities are going to be developed, how much they're going to grow over the next period? Is, does anyone have those sort of numbers? Sure. I Is can it Professor, Professor Parnell? Well, we know that between now and about 2050, we're looking at the expansion of the global urban population of about 2.5 billion people. Um, and that's going to be very, very different in different parts of the world. 2.5 billion more people living in cities? Living in cities. Right. At the same time, over the same time frame, we will see a net decline in the rural population. It's still going to account for about a third of the world's population, but it'll go down from about 3.4 to about 3.2 billion. But what's important is that this is going to be very, very different in different regions. And, and that's the point that's being made. If you look at somewhere like Africa, you're looking at the expansion of about 600 million new urban residents. And that doesn't equate necessarily to these new cities that we're talking about. I think we've got to be very, very careful that that distribution is going to be in existing cities. Most cities are growing because yes. there's a natural increase in population. Quite a lot of what will become urban are currently small rural settlements. They're not codified as urban at the moment, but they'll become urban. And so, yes, there are going to be some new cities in, in particular kinds of ways, but that's probably not the dominant story. Can I, Professor Burdett. Can I agree with that? Because uh, every minute, minute and a half that we're speaking together now, all of us, all five of us, someone is either born or has moved to Kinshasa, has moved Lagos, uh, Dhaka. That's that's the scale of what we're talking about. This is all in mainly existing cities. So here I disagree with John about the the issue that actually it's the new well-planned, potentially well-planned city, which is what we need to uh, focus on. I think we really need I to focus on... I don't say we need to focus on that, okay, Ricky. I say uh, that is, a fo that is yeah. an increasingly important focus. What this but raises what I would for take all issue of us. with you also is that people are indeed flowing into these uh, megacities. But the other issue... Not just the megacities, John. I think exactly. Sue, Sue made the key point that it's actually medium-sized cities. More and more people are going to mid-sized cities and smaller cities, and that's where those cities are going to get – they are facing the brunt of this uh, tsunami of, of, of populations. So, in fact, although, of course, Mumbai, Kinshasa, uh, Karachi, these cities that you mentioned are growing out, by leaps and bounds, the, the smaller cities are growing even more. And how do you make those smaller cities – uh, dynamic realities and livable realities, because in in you know many nation states, it's a capital uh, city like Delhi or the business capital like Mumbai that gets the lion's share of resources. But can um, I just add you know, something here? Yeah, this is Dr. Perlman sure. in Rio. The biggest problem is for these mid-sized cities that are growing, and for the large cities that are growing around their peripheries, although not in the city itself. The fastest growth is going to be growth of people who are not necessarily going to be following the zoning regulations or the planning yes. ideas that the state or the city or the, or the nation state has created. For example, today uh, there's, there are a billion people living in squatter settlements. But that, that is a stunning number. A, 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 billion a billion people are living in unregulated sort of shanty towns or, 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 or you know, on the edges of cities. Exactly. And within a very short number of years, by 2030, that will double to 2 billion. 
and by 2050, that'll be 3 billion people. So one-third of the population of the planet by 2050 will be urbanites living off the grid off in the grid. shanty towns. Yeah. So I'll tell you what, in the second half of the program, we're going we're gonna to be discussing solutions. But it, what we're trying to do now, just uh, before the break, is get more problems. I mean, that is a massive problem. We've talked a lot about the issue of inequality and uh, informality. What we haven't talked about, I guess, is the environmental issue. Because um, if you take these numbers, whatever they are and wherever they are, Cities today, because of what they are, they're the engines of our national economies, consume something like 65 70% of world energy, and therefore contribute to 75% of world pollution. A small difference in changing the ecological footprint of any city makes a dip- big difference to the planet. The reality is that most of the cities that are growing so fast in the way that we've been talking about are following the model from the 1960s, basically imported on from the U.S., which is car-based and sprawl. I, mean, I have to say, however much advice they get, that that's not a great plan. They don't seem to listen, right? No, because people are trained to give that advice. <laughs> and it's even it, worse. Actually, they're following the infrastructure, the environmentally absolutely wasteful infrastructure from the end of the last century when um, the internal combustion engine, uh, elevators, skyscrapers, and uh, the systems for water and sanitation were first developed... Uh, most of those systems haven't really changed significantly in any of our infrastructure, so we're wasting drinkable water every time we flush a toilet because everyone is going back over a century in the in the infrastructure, and even the new cities and new areas of cities that are being built continue to mimic this um, urban uh, it, beginning of the Industrial Revolution. So, or, or actually... The, the Las Vegas model, yeah. I can see that Professor Parnell wants to say something, but before that, can you just tell us Las Vegas model? What do you mean by that, John Rosand? Las Vegas model is the one that was developed uh, after the Second World War, and it depended solely on the use of the privately owned motor car. Okay. And you have a series of uh, freeways and throughways and bridges and overpasses, and the city is built essentially along that grid. The, the ultimate so we car, look today, yeah. yeah, and yeah. so, for example, Dubai, which is, you know, in, in very many senses a 21st century reality, it's a very modern uh, new city, is uh, unfortunately built along uh, the lines of Las Vegas. So you have it completely bifurcated by these l- large freeways. It's hard to cross except through uh, pedestrian overpasses, and it, it breaks the city into these discontinent uh, areas somewhat. So, so, Professor Parnell, you just had a point. Yeah, no, and, um, I think what we've seen in our discussion is, is that what we've done is we've shifted from identifying a demographic challenge about the growth of cities to saying there's an ecological challenge about the consumption in cities, and, and that's really useful. What is important also, though, is, is to realize that those two things are coupled um, mm-hmm. because when you look at places like Ethiopia or Nigeria, where you've got nearly 5% rates of growth, you're talking about managing cities that are going to double in about 15 years. So it doesn't matter whether you're talking about a small city or a big city. But what is important in that is what the consumption patterns are. And what we have to assume is that those consumption patterns are not going to remain static and low, which they are at the moment. And mm-hmm. that's got very real implications. And so then this discussion about what kind of urban living what kind of resource consumption, then that becomes really important. With, with all this expertise around, I, I hesitate to do what I'm now going to do. I've got some figures. They are UN figures, but, I mean, you may know better. But this is what I've got for the size at the moment of the world's largest cities. 
Tokyo, 38 million. So that's the biggest city, right? Tokyo. Delhi, 25 million, owned by far. Delhi, 25 million. Shanghai, 23 million. Mexico City, 21 million. Mumbai, 21 million. Now, how's that going to change? Are we going to see African cities on this scale? I think it's going to take a while. But when you look at the figures overall, you'll see that there'll be probably 19 cities over this century with 20 million people or more by, in this 21st century. There's a huge growth of megacities. And now what you're seeing is that megacities are not just growing by population. Some, like in Latin America, have leveled off. But they're growing by adding, agglomerating of small towns in the environment. It's a tremendous challenge in these. To manage 21 or 25 or 38 million people, you're going to need to decentralize both service delivery and governance. No, no, it takes a lot of thought looking up to 38 million. We got, uh, that was Dr. Perman and uh, Professor Burdett. And can you, in your, in whatever your comment is, can you also define for us a megacity? Well, that was my point, which is you rolled off some very nice numbers from the UN, but they're sort of, you're not comparing apples with apples because, um, when you actually said that Tokyo is 38 million, that's the agglomeration of the greater Kanto... Well, I wondered about yeah. it. No, no, no. Where, where does no. the city end, exactly? Yeah. And actually, Delhi, the, the people under the, so to speak, chief minister of Delhi, is actually a much smaller number. And Mexico City, which is, yeah, roughly 21, 22 million, the people who vote for the mayor of Mexico City are 7 million. So there's an issue, and that's what was being said a moment ago, who actually decides. I'm actually quite optimistic about large-scale uh, development because it can lead you to large-scale thinking about regional interrelationship. That's fundamental to the points that Sue was raising about uh, inequality and transport. You can't solve the problem of the ecological footprint just by yourself as a city, however big or small you are. You've got to think about the region. And I think governance becomes very, very fundamental to that aspect. Let's take Tokyo, the greater Tokyo, biggest in the world, Average commuting times there, average commuting times in the biggest city of the world are under an hour. 80% of that bigger region, 80% take public transport to get to work because it works. In L.A., it's exactly the opposite. Detroit, Las Vegas, it's you know even more so. And that's the sort of model we need to really discuss, but in a context of diminishing funds from state uh, coffers uh, and increased privatization. OK, so that helps us understand. Can, can you, are there any problems that we should be discussing in the second half for, you know, when we're looking at solutions that we've not mentioned? Well, we've, we, you know, we've had inequality, we've had environment, we've had these various things. Anything else? I mean, I think one, one issue that, that is a related issue but we haven't mentioned yet is simply the banal one of traffic. And if you look at, if you say, well, cities are still being planned... Uh, along the lines of, you know, uh, people are in motor cars, etc., which is the case. You know, Jakarta, for example, is the last great megacity on earth without a, a, a decent public transport system. So people rely on cars, uh, motor scooters, etc., and so you have, you know, the, some of the world's most god-awful traffic. Um, Dubai itself, I mentioned, this is, this is the poster child for the, you know, the, the modern um, city in the Middle East. The traffic is terrible, despite the billions of dollars that have gone into that infrastructure. In the United States alone, traffic and congestion cost the American economy 60 or $70 billion a year. So it's something we have to get around. And, um, you know, I think technology is starting to provide an answer. I mean, if you look at Los Angeles with its 
horrific traffic. Uh, a friend of mine recently who lives in the middle of uh, Los Angeles, he and his wife, just told me, hey, we, we gave up our car. And I said, what? How could you survive in L.A. without a car? And he said, it's easy. Uber is so ubiquitous and cheap that we use it to go everywhere. And then when we don't use Uber, we take our bikes. That's pretty narrow definition of who uses the city. Yeah. Well, exactly. I, I, I it's not going to solve content. Uber ain't going to yeah. solve the problem of cities. Okay, let, 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 I, I no. wanted to add. Let I me just add one talking, thing that we didn't talk yeah. about. One, one. Okay, this is Dr. Perlman. I wanted to add the rise in sea levels, because um, among the megacities of the world, Dakar, Metro Manila, Bangkok, Jakarta, Calcutta, Mumbai, and Lagos, um, not to mention New York are all very much at risk for sea level rise. And so it's not just the garbage, the air pollution, the traffic, then, but it's also the, the flooding. Okay, lots to talk about, and we'll come back uh, to do that. We're just going to take a short break now. In the second half of the programme, as I say, we'll be looking at some of the uh, things that can be done about all of this. Just to remind you, if you uh, want to comment on the programme, do send us an email, Extra. That's all one word, Extra at gmail.com, Twitter, at BBC NH Extra, BBC NH Extra. And there is the podcast. We do encourage you to listen that way. It is available once a week, and that is BBC News Hour Extra in your search engine or podcast provider or whatever, and it will be downloaded to whatever device you select. You're listening to News Hour Extra from the BBC World Service with Owen Bennett Jones, and we have two professorial experts with us here in the studio Susan Parnell and Ricky Burdett. In Rio, we have Dr. Janice Perlman, and in New York, John Rosant, all experts on cities. They think about the way cities are going to develop, what the problems are, what the challenges are, and what the solutions are. And, and I think if we can restrict this to these very big cities so that at least we're getting some focus on this. And can you just give us some examples of good practice? And so if you're looking at what the political leaders, the mayors, the, the people who run these cities are doing, and you've got examples from all over the world, obviously, can you just tell us some things that are impressive in your view, that people are doing well. Should, should, we, should we start uh, uh, abroad? And, and, and Dr. Perlman, can you, what, what example can you give us? The different cities are doing different things well. Some of them are doing things well in a very, very small scale. Um, some cities are, uh, in the developing world, are taking up the idea of taking several problems and turning them into solutions, such as the buildup of huge amounts of, of garbage and the lack of income generation. In Cairo, at the Zebulin and in other places, they have taken to sorting the, and separating the garbage and um, creating a, either useful products or beautiful products, weavings and embossed uh, metal platters and all kinds of things from the use of these things that would ordinarily end up in a landfill. That has spread. The Megacities Project actually helped to spread that to um, Manila and Metro Manila, and then it spread to other cities in the Philippines, and it's also gone to Jakarta. So along with a project of greening these cities, there's been a project of creating income by something that was considered waste. And, of course, Curitiba calls that uh, lishu, kinoi lishu, garbage that's not garbage, bottom-up, small solutions that go along with these large, smart city, top-down things that are the cities that are trying to position themselves as world cities, global cities, cities that attract um, international investment. And I think there's a, a contradiction right there that I'd love to hear the other panelists discuss, which is how to deal with these two competing 
views. One is the city for all, the just city, the inclusive city, the democratic city, and the other one is a city for the elite where the mayor gets to be very famous because they created, like in Brazil right now, a very new downtown area right around the port, and they've revitalized. So that could be considered a success, just like uh, Medellin is considered a success because of the wonderful thing they did with reducing violence. But the part of that success that has been picked up and copied with very bad results is the the little gondolas, the telefericos themselves, which are only the tip of the iceberg. So there's the sort of best practice, easy fix by an infrastructure investment, whereas the real challenge of a good practice of Medellin was working with over time with the gangs, the drug gangs, and the people who felt excluded. Okay, we're going to mention, uh, we're actually going to get, we're going to hear about Medellin specifically with someone who worked on that project in just a moment, but let's just run through the panel and ask for examples of good practice. John Rosant? Well, I don't, yeah, I don't think it's an either-or approach between, you know, sort of top-down, uh, very planned approaches and, and, and sort of bottom-up uh, things. I mean, we, we certainly like the bottom-up approach. I mean, again, if I could refer to Jakarta, um, so the top-down uh, solution is that the authorities are finally putting in a mass transit public transport system, which is great, and that will that will solve some of the traffic problems. But there are also so many bottom-up initiatives that are made possible now by some of the new digital uh, technologies coming down the line. So, for example... Um, a young uh, Indonesian in Jakarta has come up with something called Gojek, which is an Uber-like system for connecting the hundreds of thousands of scooters in Jakarta. And it, it's become a fabulous success. So you, ev- everybody, poor, rich, indifferent, has a phone, a smartphone in, in Indonesia. And so you have an app for calling a, uh, a scooter, and it works absolutely brilliantly. There's another group out there who have set up a smartphone-based application that gives you that gives populations in Jakarta advanced warning of floods, which is a, a real hazard in that city. And so we see over and over again these sort of bottom-up uh, leveraging of new technologies that absolutely would not have been possible, you know, four years ago. Yeah. That's very interesting. And so, so Professor Burdett, do you, do, you, do you think most of the innovation is coming bottom-up, or do you see mayors and these big politicians developing solutions that are, that are impressive? Clearly both. But the thing is, you can't solve the big problems of big cities or medium-sized cities that are going to be big by small interventions, however worthy they are. I mean, I think that that's where... So l- let me reflect on where, where what I think there there have been uh, re- really positive changes. Well, I'm going to stick to the city we're in right now because 20 years ago, London didn't have any political representation at all. And what did we do? We invented a thing called a mayor, directly elected mayor. That has created at least three things which are, I think, positive. One is that it's resisted the pressures, which are enormous in London, (coughs) for eating up all the land outside and has preserved the green belt. This magical thing, which is like a belt you put around your, the middle of your body, uh, but you don't allow the body to expand, right? You allow the city to grow inside. You densify it. John talked about densification and uh, the importance of that before. So that's one thing that London has done. Secondly, what it's done, it's invested massively in public transport, right? Of all the major cities, the New Yorkers, and John will, I'm sure, agree with this, they wish they could have 
the Crossrail project, which will open in two years. You know, we're talking about $25 billion of public investment. It's, it's a massive underground railway, a new one in London. Copying what Paris did, maybe better, a few years ago. So that's interesting. And the current mayor, Boris Johnson of London, is actually spending nearly £1 billion of his budget in the last year to create a whole series of cycle lanes, super cycle lanes, as they're called, crisscrossing London, which therefore works at a different level. It's complementing sort of the, the bigger picture. So I'd say it's interesting how London has retrofitted itself both politically and physically to, I think, perform quite well. We have massive problems, housing, schooling, and many other things. But I think that's an example. A small, tiny one in northern England, Kirklees, little town, effectively, because it doesn't have money, they share all their facilities in the local authority, including lawnmowers, cars, so that if anything's available, anyone can use it as long as you book No, this doesn't count. How many people live in Cleese? Cleese. That's not... It doesn't matter. It's tiny. It's maybe 200,000 people. But it's a model of what John was talking about before, which can actually be exported upwards. You reckon you could do that in a big place? (laughs) If you organise yourself, yes. Uh, and, and just your, your comments, uh, Professor Parnell, on, on good practice. So one of the interventions I admire is the Ethiopians who are sitting with nearly 5% uh, rates of growth in their cities and they realised they didn't have enough civil servants and, and built environment professionals and they've scaled that up dramatically. So they've gone to a root cause and they've said we've got to make an intervention that will have lasting effect. Let's hear about Medellin, because it is often pointed to, we've heard it just referred to as a place which uh, managed to reduce its levels of violence. Because, I mean, you know, it wasn't so long ago that it was the glo- yeah, it was thought of as the city with the most violence, most dangerous place on earth to go. And, it, it, you know, it's still got big problems, Medellin, but nothing like it used to have. And Alejandro Echeverri is an architect and urban planner from the city. Uh, he's currently at Harvard University. And he has been involved in this regeneration of Medellin. So, and, he, and he comes from there. So first of all, what was it like when he was a boy? Medellin was a different city, very different city when I was young. Uh, violence and inequality as well. So we have a war inside the city. We were the most, the most violent city in the world. It was a very, very hard time as well. Now then, turning a city round from being the most violent in the world is obviously a huge challenge. And I can't really believe that architecture has that much to do with it, or city planning. Tell us how Medellin managed to recover. The architecture and the urban transformation in Medellin were one of the most important tools, but has to be a holistic process. I would like to talk more about the narrative that you build, combining new politicians with new politicians' approach and engage the civic society in the urban processes. Well, just tell us a bit about the architecture side of it and the city planning. What contribution did that make? One of the things that happen when you are living in a very violent situation is that you lose the confidence. You don't trust the others. So the architecture and the urbanism has the capacity to transform spaces and to build new experience in the city and give the opportunity to the people to reconnect using, as well, the public transport system. So I think it would help if you could give us one specific example of how design helped build trust. The Library Park Spain is with the Santo Domingo Barrio neighbourhood, where the cable car, a new transport system happens that is linked with the metro system in Medellin. 
So the itineraries of the common people were completely re redefined and revealed, small plazas, lighting, and connected the new cultural centre, the library park with the school. Just taken as a whole, I'm getting the impression that what you're saying is it has to be lots of things together, good design, but also education programmes, urban activities, if you like, bringing people together in public spaces and rebuilding communities and trust. Yes, the most important thing is to engage communities and to produce the future of the cities with the people, not without the people. And that was uh, Alejandro Echeverri there, who's now at Harvard. And I must say, I thought it was very, very interesting what he said, that one of the key things about Medellin, however you achieve it, was rebuilding trust amongst the people who live there so that they can go out doing their business, not fearful, feeling safe and able to to, to move around the city. I mean, building trust must be quite a difficult thing for a mayor to do, I would guess. Uh, Has anyone got views on this, how you go about doing that? It depends on, I think, you know, democratic... uh organization of governance is is quite important because you know the good thing about democracy is that there is this feedback loop which in some societies uh, doesn't exist if we look at for example china and the way urbanization has proceeded in china it's been very very impressive on many levels but we do over and over get these enormous white elephants that are a result of completely top-down planning approaches where uh, communities aren't really listened to, etc. Mayors have yeah. to have the trust of multiple constituencies, and that's the yes. real difficulty. So successful mayors have the trust both of the citizenry, but also of some of the professionals for who, who work for them in their city management. And in big cities, that's really important because that's some of the people who keep the water clean and who are actually able to, to manage the systems on which residents depend are hidden. And they, the mayor has to have their trust. The mayor has to have the trust of, of national political figures as well if you're going to operate effectively. So the, the, the practice of being a successful mayor of a big city is enormously complicated, much more complicated than being a Do you run a course on it in university? <laughs> I'm going to we be do a, at the LSE. You do? How to be a mayor? <laughs> How amazing. Uh, okay. I can add something to yes. the, the trust building, which is I think it takes a long time. I think it takes usually more than one mayor, or it takes a succession of mayors with the same ability to fulfill their promises. I think what destroys trust is what just uh, happens recently in Rio, but it, in general it's when promises are made right before an election, uh, promises of delivering services and um, social opportunities across the city, and then as soon as the election is over, those promises are forgotten and another route is taken for the way the money is spent. And I think one of the things that was so nice in Medellin is that not only did they start with a process of trust building from going to the most violent neighborhoods and creating spaces, sort of um, nonviolent zones, but they used that as an incentive. They would said, well, we can put this fantastic library with this beautiful architecture and a plaza of learning and of coming together, but it has to be done with these two opposing gangs. So first of all, the mayor was very clever in setting up incentive systems for collaboration. Second of all, the mayor didn't do this alone. They had the largest infrastructure companies and oldest corporations in the city gave money to a a semi-private, semi-government institution that did the planning and worked with the people. And third of all, it was not one mayor but a succession of mayors that um, showed that they kept their promises and that the jobs created in this new 
infrastructure building, this new system of linked transportation, a lot of those jobs were given to local residents. And if you go on one of those escalators or telephetic was uh, their security guards from the local place. They were sellers on, of food, uh, local homemade food and arts and crafts things. And the people who show you around, the guides and those things, are all people locally who've bought in and are earning an income from that. So it takes a while and it takes consistency. And if any mayor is shown to be pocketing their money or changing their plans after they get elected, then that breaks trust not just for that mayor but for many mayors to come. It's harder and harder to rebuild trust once the trust has been broken. Yes, I mean, the way you describe it is quite daunting, actually, because you can just see the scale of the problem Medellin faced and how difficult it was to fix it, but they seem to have achieved a lot there. Let's just think about new cities. We did mention them earlier, and we've got an example, so let's just hear about that. It's in UAE, and it's called Mazda City, and it's actually been... Uh, developed by some leading London architects, Foster and Partners, very well-known company here, firm here. And uh, I don't know how significant this is, but we're, we're talking to the director rather than the mayor, so I don't know what that says about democratic accountability and all the rest of it. But his name is Anthony Mallows, and he told me about the construction of Mazda City. On February the 8th, 2008, the government of Abu Dhabi launched an ambitious plan to create what aims to be the world's sustainable city, Mazda City. Mazda City is one of a series of initiatives by the Abu Dhabi leadership to, in fact, diversify the energy platform through innovation and attack the issue of carbon-based energy causing greenhouse gas. So we're building both a city that's low carbon at Mazda, but also a community. It's a fantastic opportunity to be able to build a new city. What have you been surprised by? What was on the plans that didn't work out? That's a very good question. Initially, I think when people were looking at the city of the future that was low carbon, technology was viewed as less static. And some of the challenges we faced is how fast technology, for instance, in mobility, PV and uh, turbines, has all moved much faster than the concept of the city. So keeping cars outside the city at the time made a great deal of sense. But now we know cars don't burn fossil fuel or the cars of the future won't. So cars and mobility has changed the paradigm of the city, and movement in the city is a big deal. What's your home city? Where are you from? I'm originally from Johannesburg. What have you learnt in Mazda City that you think you could go to the mayor of Johannesburg and say, look, you need to do this? I think retrofitting cities to be lower carbon, you've got to start with mobility. But I would look at cities as neighbourhoods or districts first and understand how you can walk in mixed-use environments to start to look at the integration of land uses so people can live and work in a much more integrated way, and then use transit, which is sustainable, to connect the larger distances and the larger areas. So re-engineer cities to walk rather than to drive. And Mazda City is a, a reasonably good, I would say it's a very good example, but it's not the only example of how you produce a low-carbon city, look at energy, water, and mobility in an integrated way, starting with walking and looking at efficiency at every level. Technology is moving so fast when it comes to alternative energy platforms that 
the city of the future needs to be an open system with a lot of flexibility. And the regulatory environment needs to understand how to be flexible that allow more efficient cities to function. And that was Anthony Mallows from uh, Mazda City. So let me just ask you all about smart cities, because we hear this phrase, smart cities, I'm not terribly sure what it means, except a lot of Wi-Fi, um, maybe. Uh, perhaps, John Rassant, you could just tell us, what does it actually mean, this phrase, smart cities? Uh, I don't know, and it's, it's, a, <laughs> right. it's there, there are very many different definitions. I mean, it runs from, for example, putting in kind of unified command centre that can, in some ways, digitally control city services. You know, oftentimes it does mean just sort of fibre optics everywhere. I think, you know, generally, it's accepted that cloud computing, ubiquitous internet, uh, robust 5G networks, etc., will will transform our cities, whether they're in the global south or the developed uh, world. And, you know, we're, technolo- technology is really a game changer, I think, in urbanization. Yeah. That's what we're you know, the, the, and we see how it is transformed. No, it all happens very quick, doesn't it? So, so do we? Do we agree? Yes. Do, do the professors agree that smart cities are basically just using technology as best you can? It's more than just as best you can. I think for what what I think smart cities represent also is is a resurgence of a commercial interest in the running of cities. Large corporations, Google or Siemens, Cisco, other big corporates, are really interested for the first time in in, in what happens in, in running a city. What what worries me about it is what's use. I mean, clearly technology is is critical, and we want dynamic spaces which respond to design, including design that is e-design. That's appropriate. But when that e-design doesn't go to the fundamentals of the allocation of resources and the costing of resources and the generation of revenue and the politics that that represents, that's not very smart. So when Sue and I were at a conference in Delhi last year, this is Professor uh, uh, organized by the LSE and uh, colleagues called the Urban Age, uh, it was a, a little bit about this issue of the smart city, right? And uh, one professor, another professor, uh, got up and said, well, you know, the issue about smart cities is that they need brains. And there was silence in the room. Who decides? What Sue is talking about, actually, the word smart city is copyrighted by IBM, effectively. Oh, really? that's, yeah, that's what they sort of started off with. But let me go back and link this to SimCity and, and Mazdar. These are not cities, right? Mazdar is not a city. It's a cluster of about 20 buildings, ridiculously expensive, beautifully designed by Norman Foster. He's one of the greatest living human beings in the world, for sure. You can't duplicate that anywhere. Abu Dhabi practically went bankrupt. So, you know, it's, it's fine. But, you know, none of these models apply uh, uh, elsewhere. The smartness that I think Sue was talking about is about systems. And can, can you actually retrofit a city in a way that it just makes it more efficient? But Going back to her earlier point, technology by itself is, it does nothing. It has to be socially connected in terms of what it does. In India, they're about to invest in 98 smart cities. For them, smartness is a completely different concept from what IBM uh, or, 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 or Siemens thinks. Can I, can I just close with a topic which um, I, I, my editor actually came up with a, suge- uh, a solution, so you can tell me whether he's right or not. It seems to me as a non-expert in this, that if you're in central London, if you're in Manhattan, if you're in a lot of the cities of the world, it is becoming so expensive to buy property that most people who work in the city simply can't afford to do it. And that requires a solution. Probably most people would agree with that. Is the only solution, my editor suggests, is you, you have to build more in the middle to, to bring down property prices. Is that it? Is that, is that the only way to do this? Because it does seem quite urgent. Does, building is one question. The other one is tax. 
Okay, so how does that work? Cities work and always have worked on some form of redistribution. And one of the things that you have to ask is what are the kinds of instruments that are in place in the fiscal system that have made London so unaffordable? Is this a natural state of being or is this a product of policy? And I would so, argue so it's you, a product you, you, of policy. You tax expensive properties and well, subsidise... There are lots of different kinds of taxes that you can put in place. Yeah. But to assume that this is a natural condition that we can do nothing about is just naive. Is there any city that had this problem of very, very high prices, in, you know, which are keeping most workers out, and have solved it? Well, I think uh, densifying or intensifying, as you've just said, building more, uh, but also you have to provide some threshold of affordability. Otherwise, what Sue has just described will just go on and on. I mean, under yeah. Ken Livingstone, when he was the mayor of London, <coughs> all new buildings which had more than 10 units, that's more or less all of them, had to have something like 50% affordable housing. The current political regime has decided that that number should be lower. So it's a, it very much... So a, that's a political, political choice. But the other point is there is the regional question again. You can connect places well, but you've got to invest in green public transport and affordable one to redistribute the system in terms of where people live, people work and, and play. John Rosant, I mean, am I wrong in seeing Manhattan as increasingly a sort of, you know, fantastically expensive, often empty uh, place where people have second flats and all the rest of it, and, and, and you know, not really a thriving community like it used to be? Listen, I think New York is as thriving and dynamic as it ever was, if not more so. I mean, it's become in so many ways in the last few years uh, one of the great startup cities of the world. I mean, it's, 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 you know, giving Silicon Valley a run for its money. So something is, is happening here. Obviously, housing and inclusion are critically important issues here. Um, we have absolutely to build uh, much smaller units for, you know, this uh, youngish urban professionals who are flocking to the cities. And, you know, we need to go almost to a more kind of Tokyo, Japanese styles of mini apartments, which is fine. I mean, I think that, you know, if you're 25, you don't, you know, you don't need a sort of two or three bedroom apartment that's going to be very expensive. And, and you, 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 you can't afford it anyway. I live in New York. I happen to be in Rio now for a research project, but I am yeah. a New Yorker. And um, I, I think that the city is more vibrant than ever. I think the big challenge of the city is not to gentrify every area of it so that it doesn't, it loses its diversity. And Manhattan is not empty. It is. Okay, buzzing. I stand corrected. It's my mistake. I uh, must have been there on a Sunday afternoon or something. Uh, Professor Burdett, you, you had a final comment. I'm just saying, if I'm sitting here listening to this conversation, we're missing out two critical words. And most of the listeners in the World Service will be thinking of these. One is migration. We haven't really talked about the people who are coming in, where are they from, and what are they like. And allied to that is tolerance. Because the biggest risk of cities, we've seen this everywhere, Can, you could even talk about Paris recently, mm. is that you create ghettos of people who are different. And cities have to be about mixing people from different backgrounds and being tolerant. Now then, you've done a very difficult thing now, which has introduced some very interesting remarks right at the end, <laughs> which we don't have time to discuss. Uh, all I can do is, is, is say thank you very, very much uh, to all of you, to Professor Parnell, to Professor Burdett, to Janice, Dr Janice Perlman and to John Rosant. Uh, it's been a very interesting discussion and, as ever, we could have gone on for much longer, but we're very grateful for your contributions. And just to say very quickly, if you want to comment... It is bbcnewshourextra at gmail.com. We do reply to all the emails we get, bbcnewshourextra 
at gmail.com, either on this programme or what you think we should be covering, any topics, uh, at BBC NH Extra is our Twitter handle. And just put BBC News Hour Extra into your search engine or podcast provider. It will uh, take you to the right place and you can subscribe there. But for now, from me, thanks for listening. And from Owen Bennett-Jones in London, goodbye.